0: When Nancy Mullane was a child, she got a new bicycle for Christmas and was devastated because what she'd really wanted was a tape recorder. Naturally inquisitive, she knew early on that she wanted to be a journalist. And as a young woman listening to the radio in Los Angeles, she realized that that was her medium. She marched in and asked for a job and got one. She began doing interviews, eventually becoming news producer and news director. She then moved on to feature stories for national programs and for NPR. After the birth of her child, she left the hectic schedule of radio producing behind and began teaching journalism, English, and American history. But eight years ago, she quit teaching and returned to her first love. A report on the penal system brought Nancy inside San Quentin Prison, where she encountered several men serving time for murder. Her interest in who they were as people led to the writing and publication of her debut book, Life After Murder. We'll talk to Nancy about making multiple trips to a prison having a book that's submitted for a Pulitzer Prize, and her path to publication, as Nancy Mullane joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show author Nancy Mullane. Thank you for joining us today, Nancy.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: So your, your debut book is called Life After Murder, and it's Sounds like a very intriguing story. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's the story of my journey, uh, meeting people who have, uh, at one time in their lives, committed a murder offense, and, you know, I met them inside a prison, San Quentin State Prison in, the, in Northern California, and, and it's my journey to find out who do they become 20, 30 years after their crime, after they've been sent to prison. I became very curious when I met them that they didn't, you know, they just didn't look like what I thought a murderer would look like. And as a reporter, I felt that it was uh, a question that I needed to answer. I needed to really find out who do people who commit murder and are sent to prison become.
0: And how did you, what was going, I mean, what was it like to go into San Quentin prison? I think that would be pretty intimidating.
1: It is. It's well. A. It's the, It's very difficult to get press access to any prison in California. Uh, you know, you have to go through the CDCR in Sacramento, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in Sacramento, and you have to be approved. You have to give all of your personal identification information, your driver's license, Social Security number, date of birth, place of birth. You know, just almost like almost a birth, I mean, a, um, a passport kind of clearance and they check you out, um, and then you go through the prison, and you contact the public information officer inside a prison, and then they clear you, and uh, it, sometimes it takes weeks, even months to get clearance, but finally that day came, and I had been cleared to go inside San Quentin, so I met the public information officer at the east gate, which is uh, the gate where visitors uh, you know, go into the prison, and you know, it's kind of intimidating just walking up to the gate because there's <laughs> a guard with a gun and there's, you know, it's it's just, there's a high wall and you can see there's one side and that's where we are, the people, uh, you know, who who walk around outside of prisons. And then there's the other side and that's where prisoners are. And, and so there's just this sense of control the minute mm-hmm. you walk through the gate. And I was immediately taken to the warden's office as was planned to interview the warden, which was just wonderful because he was a wonderful warden. His name was Robert Ayers, and he had been warden of a number of prisons. So he was very confident. He was close to his second or third retirement, and (laughs) he was easy to talk to. He wasn't um, nervous or cautious about his answers. And, you know, he said one thing to me that I'll never forget in that first visit to a prison. He said, you know, 90% of the people that you're going to meet inside this prison are going to come back out. How do you want them? Uh And it made me just think, you know, that's right. We send people to prison, but do we really think about the fact that, you know, the vast majority are going to come back out into society. So what are we doing with them inside prison? Mm -hmm. So that, that I, so as I walked through what's called the Sally port with the public information officer as my escort, you know, I, you know, that kind of was ringing in my ears, you know, just, Wow, that's right. They do come back out, but who am I going to see inside? And I was really nervous. Are they going to wear be in handcuffs, you know, are they going to be locked in cells when I see them? I just <laughs> had no idea what inside a prison would be like with prisoners. And after we passed through the sally port where there's kind of a caged environment where no one can pass through without a double check, mm-hmm. you walk in and then there's prisoners walking around, you know, and <laughs> they are all in very telltale blue shirts. Or gray t-shirts and blue jeans or sweatpants, gray sweatpants. So there's just this very, uh, common, uh, uh, stature. You know, you just look around and you see them. They all just seem like they're, they're one, but then they're walking around. And, and so the, the, I was supposed to meet with someone who was a volunteer who had agreed to meet with me when I got inside and, um, to talk to me about a program that she was working on with as a volunteer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but when I got inside the um, public information officer's cell phone buzzed in his belt, and he took it off and said, "I have to take care of this," and he left. And he put me in a little room by myself, and that, yeah. you know, that was kind of a frightening moment because I was just alone in a mm-hmm. prison for the first time. And the door opened a few minutes later, and four men standing in that telltale blue were standing in the doorway, and I realized, <laughs> oh, this is a bad situation. And they came in, and um, it, I just was terrified. I thought that was it. You know, these people have committed murder or something worse, maybe whatever, and I thought they're going to want to hurt me um, because that's what murderers want to do. They <laughs> they kill, and then they want to kill again. So that's why we have to keep them locked up behind these high walls and after a few minutes the door opened again and two more prisoners were standing there and they came in so now there's six of them and me
0: oh my god and
1: um i reached over and i had my trusty tape deck with me and i (laughs) turned it on thinking i slid the little button thinking that's it i'm going to be safe uh that at least somebody will know what happened to me in these moments uh maybe i won't survive it but there will be a record of it and um and they saw it. I'm sure they must have seen me reach over and turn my on. And one of them uh, asked me, "So, who are you, and what are you doing here?" And I looked up, and he, you know, I explained that I was a reporter. And you know, he said, "We didn't even allow the BBC to come in. Nobody told us you were coming in." And I thought, <laughs> "What? You know, like what? What are you saying? Like I'm a reporter." And he said, "You know," he looked at me, and he could see that there was just this really frightened person, I think, in front of him. And, mm-hmm. and he just said, my name's Don Cronk, what's yours? And he held out his hand to shake my hand. Oh, wow. And it was such a powerful, like, reversal of everything I expected. It was just mm-hmm. clashed with all the images in my mind. And all of the other men in the room were very nice. They reached out their hands to say hello. One of them offered to go get me a glass of water. He said, I didn't look very good. And, <laughs> and, and you know, that was the beginning of this Um, And that also, so that, that was the beginning of this question. If I expected people who had committed committed murder to look one way and, and to behave one way, and they weren't in any way behaving in that stereotype way that was embedded in my mind, then I thought, why do I think that Mm -hmm. and who are they really? And so that, um, and, and, you know, it came to me as that kind of a question, but then there was a second question and that was that one of the men I met had been found suitable for parole by the board of parole hearings in the state. And, and yet he wasn't necessarily going to get out. And they said that maybe he was going to get out. And I thought, well, what is maybe? Um, and that began the whole examination of what is parole? How do people who have committed murder, um, get a parole from prison? And, and I, that's when I discovered that the governor in the state has the authority to, reverse a parole board decision um, unilaterally. They can just say, no, I've reversed it, and that's it. Wow. They don't get out. And so that began this whole examination of the politics and the process of parole in the state of California, which took me five years.
0: <laughs> wow. Now, yeah, I was going to say, because it took you yeah, so long to, to gather all this information and follow these men, did you ever find it hard to remain objective and re- maintain that journalist stance towards these people as you got to know them over the, over the years?
1: Well, you know, I met them all. I met three of the men, um, inside prison Mm -hmm. and that, that's not hard at all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're constantly on high alert when you're inside a prison, you, you know, and that's the hard part really of reporting on prisons is you, you know, once you pass through that gate, it doesn't matter how many times you've been inside. Um, and I'll say inside as a reflection of going inside the prison where the prisoners are. No matter how many times you go inside, I find that my body goes into and my mind goes into high alert. It's just such an intensive sense. As this, your senses are so alert to the sounds and the 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 all the people. There's so many people. There's five thousand men incarcerated in San Quentin. So wow. when you go in a cell block, there's two or three hundred men locked in, you know, four foot wide cells, Gosh. one after the other in rows of 50 cells, five tiers high. You know, there's sometimes four different tiers in a cell block. So the sounds, the smells, the, the voices, the tension, the, the control, it's just beyond anything I'd ever, and I still have, ne- it doesn't compare to anything I've ever experienced. And, you know, I was just inside a San Quentin again, maybe three weeks ago mm-hmm. for a six hour press ex- experience where I was going on death row oh,
0: for six wow. hours,
1: which was, I was the first reporter to be, to go on death row in eight years.
0: Wow. And,
1: um, and so I spent six hours on death row. When I came out, I was utterly exhausted every fiber was and, and that's how it is when you go in you're you're just on such high alert because you have to get as much interview as you can while you're in and you have to be paying attention to all the, the signs and sensations um, because you know when you go in you can't request an interview with a specific inmate ever
0: Oh, so you can't say,
1: I want to talk to inmate Don Cronk again. No, if you say that, that's a violation. And so you can be walked out, meaning you can be taken outside the East Gate and never brought in again.
0: Oh, wow. Because you
1: have asked for something that is a violation of the regulations of the California Code of Regulations regarding prisons and correctional institutions. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you're a reporter, you know that you have to... You're, you're straddling a very fine line. A, you have to get a report. B, you can't ask for a specific inmate. So if if you're trying to cover stories that follow inmates, you always have to be thinking, where could that inmate be? Because as the public information officer walks you through the prison to an event or to a story uh, that you're working on, and you have to get access to, a, to an inmate that you've already interviewed to do a follow-up, you can't ask to see him. You just have to try and figure out where might that inmate be while we're walking past that building or that rec hall or that dining hall or that chapel. And do you think we might stop in there and just see what's what's happening in the chapel? And (laughs) public information officer is, you have a good relationship. They'll say, well, let's see if we have time when we're done with our story. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I ended up getting repeat interviews was because I figured out the rules and I figured out, um, how to get so much access that I could somehow manage to get follow up interviews with with- with inmates, so whether you know it was never never even a a possibility of losing any sense of objectivity while you're inside a prison because you're constantly aware that you know you have a purpose and the inmate is under complete control and there's a it's a very controlled environment um but when they got out of prison after the Supreme Court ruled that the governor was overstepping his bounds by reversing virtually all of the parole board suitability findings, all of the decisions they were all getting reversed by governors. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court stepped in after 20 years of this and said, oh, "Governors have gone too far." Uh. Um, and so, the, some of the men I was following inside in this very haphazard kind of following. Um, as a reporter ended up getting the courts ordered order them to be released. So that was the interesting moment was when they crossed over from that control environment to being on parole, but free, mm-hmm. they no longer, you know, had to talk to me on any level. They could have just said, go away. We're done. We don't want to, you know, we want to be anonymous on the outside and that would have been completely justified as far as I was concerned. <laughs> so I gave them all that opportunity and um not one of them said no. Uh one of the men that I started uh reporting on inside prison who got out just kind of let it not happen. He didn't he just didn't encourage the my reporting of him. But the all mm-hmm. the others said, "Yeah, we want to continue to tell our stories because if we tell you our stories about who we are really on the outside, then um the men who we know on the inside who can't get out, uh people will be more sympathetic to their plight." Um so and you know, once they were on the outside, it became so obvious that I was reporting on them. <laughs> I mean I always had a microphone, mm-hmm. and it was always on. If they ever asked me to turn it off, it would be a very brief uh, uh, moment where we would he would they would maybe ask a question or clarify something about how that was going to be reported, or mm-hmm. if there was any like question about whether that they wanted to approach a topic. And then we would turn it back on and go. And um, so it's really, uh, it was never really a question of my objectivity. It was just a question of how much time did I have to report on five different men so intimately Mm -hmm. in their personal lives, their professional lives, their work lives, their, you know, so I, I was just constantly running from one of these men's lives to the other to try and not miss because if I was going to tell such a comprehensive look at five men who have committed a murder offense and their lives on the outside, I felt like I really had to know what I was talking about. I couldn't miss, you know, I couldn't miss an important element. It, right. Know, it, it was. I had too much responsibility. Um, so, and I just felt too responsible to, to not tell it comprehensively. So it was, um, and, you know, over the years I came to see them because I had so much access to their personal and and, and work lives um, that, you know, I came to see them as, as these really kind of very interesting, uh, reflective, compassionate people. And mm-hmm. so that made me start to have caring feelings toward them because you can't help but see, wow, look, look how much you're facing and look how... How well you're handling that situation. Um, so I think, you know, I cared. I, I, you know, that's that's a hard thing to control is whether or not you care about another human being. But they always knew, and I always knew <laughs> that this was all on the record. Um, so I don't think that was ever a question. Once the book was finished, and and the last edit had had happened, and my publisher said that's it. It's a final, basically. It's that's that's we're done. I felt a certain sense of relief because yeah. um, it was now I could kind of let go of that reporting uh, role and just kind of be with them a little bit more, um, com- more comfortably. Just talk to them and them not looking you know, okay, where's the microphone? It's like, no, 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 <laughs> we're just going to talk. <laughs> you know, we're just going to have human-to-human conversation. <laughs> so that was nice. But um, until that moment, it was always very obvious that I was a reporter and, uh, and they had signed full releases giving me complete access to their stories. So um, it was always kind of there. Right. Well, that's,
0: that's really an amazing story, and especially the fact that you, you followed, you know, so many people over, you know, a number of years, What was it like to take all of that information and organize it into a book? I mean, what was that process like?
1: Well, if you were sitting right now, I'm sitting in my office. And if you look from left to right, you see one whiteboard and it's, uh, it's very small, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then you go towards, and I always kind of go left to right, I guess, because that's how a pad of paper goes. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'll start with this whiteboard. That'll be fine. And I, it kind of has a list of all of the contacts from Supreme, you know, the judges on the Supreme Court, and the Court of Appeals, all of, there were then eight men that I was following um, and their, you know, basic information and their phone numbers and all the different parole board officials that I was talking to and all the different government officials and the wardens and the public, and it has all their names. And I thought, there's my, you know, that's a structure of some sort and some of the statistics. Then you go to the right and then there's a bigger whiteboard. (laughs) 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 And then, and and I think this one's three feet by four feet and it has a title at the top, which, you know, Life after murder, and then it has the prologue, and it has like what I thought were chapters, and some of them you know were sustained actually they held up, and then it has like these kind of bullet points under each of the chapters, and then you go further to the right, and it 's a whiteboard the size of a whole wall, oh my gosh, <laughs> and it 's just this huge that's divided into um, each you know each section of each chapter is probably maybe a Foot and a half wide by two feet long. Mm-hmm. And it just has all of the key points that I just would sit down and, and just say, that's where that's going to go, and that's where that's going to go. And, this. and then I have yellow sticking pads on top of the notes that are written down in both permanent and non permanent markers. And I have sticking points, all the different people. And then there's another whiteboard, if you go further to the right, that is a five by eight foot whiteboard that has each of the five final men that was going to be in the story. And it has all of their personal and professional and history, historical details of each of their crimes
0: oh, and wow. each of the men.
1: So I kind of am surrounded <laughs> at my <laughs> office by these men and the, their stories. And so it was kind of an evolution of, you know, here, here's this and then here's now it's getting into this more of a structure. And then it got into a very severe structure, a very, something that I could really support. And then it came to this one whiteboard where I realized I had to be able to look at a whiteboard and see all five men, every single detail about, you know, all of their statistics, all of their birth dates, their family names, their... the dates of everything they've ever done. Um, And so I could just look at it and have it all visual as I reported. And no matter where I was, I always carried that board with me. (laughs) So when I went, I went to the Russian River at one point uh, and rented a house because I was just finding that my office here in San Francisco was just too busy, not even busy with all the whiteboards, just Active. I'm a reporter, so I'm mm-hmm. constantly getting phone calls and emails, and as you know, what that must be like. And, right. and so I just said, "That's it." I hit a wall at about the third chapter. Um, I, the third chapter was. I kept working on the third. You know, the first, second, and third chapters over, and kind of reworking and thinking, "Oh, I'll get to the fourth. And then it appeared <laughs> something became apparent. Um, that fourth chapter is not coming. <laughs> so I just got in the car with my one last whiteboard, and and I just. Left the city for a little over a month, and oh. and I just you know there's no cell phone service. Perfect. There's yeah. no texting. There's nothing. There's an internet, but you know you just don't go in your email. Um, yeah. and and I finished chapters four through ten, and oh. in a week in a month and a half I had a, I basically finished the book, and I came back, and then I just uh, did the last I believe two chapters. I I can't remember. How many chapters there actually are in the book right now? Um, I should know, but I just know it all in my mind. And then I, the epilogue was uh, a few months later. That that's when the epilogue happened. So, um, so yeah, it uh, it was really a struggle. But my reporting, whenever I do radio reporting, because that's primarily what I do, is a national radio reporting and feature reporting. I always find that if I just stay with how I discovered a story. Mm-hmm. And it always happens that way. You know, I, I always set up a radio report in terms of chunks, like I need that chunk and that chunk and that chunk. These are the things I need to know. And so I go searching for the person who's going to answer that chunk. And sometimes I get surprised, oh, I didn't, there's a chunk I hadn't even thought of. <laughs> but for the most part, you usually can get the chunks pretty much. And um, and then I just start going into it like almost a, like every story is a journey, a discovery. And I somehow it always works out that the first person I talk to um, is the person who kind of leads me in, and then if I follow that 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 journey of discovery of my discovery of the story, that I usually can bring the listener or the now the reader along on that journey, mm-hmm. and it makes sense. So when it came down to how am I going to do this, you know, <laughs> all these five years of interviews and I mean I had I have literally thousands of hours of, of recorded interviews wow. that I just thought how am I ever gonna structure this and when it came down to it, I said I'm gonna do it the same way I write a radio report that's the only way I think this is going to work is if I I become I become the person that people kind of get on my back let's go through this journey together you know let's I'll take you with me mm-hmm. and and um there was a there was a librarian um, at the San Francisco Public Library who I, someone recommended I talk to before I wrote the book just to get an idea of how things might work. And and she said, um, whatever you do, insert yourself in the story. If you don't insert yourself, we won't trust the book. We oh. have to know that somebody we can relate to has seen, seen this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my publisher was like, no, 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 take yourself out of the book. Just tell these five men stories. And and so we I flew to New York and sat across the desk from him for like four hours um, before I started writing and we just had this long conversation. I just felt it was very important we would be on the same page and he felt the same way. And so the two of us sat across the table uh, or his desk and it was a, it was snowing outside in New York and we just it was a December and I just. We've, at the end of that, we were both on the same page that I was going to be in the story as, um, as this person who was taking people on a journey. And so that's how it happened. And these whiteboards are kind of a, a testament to the, the development of that story.
0: Yeah, I think it, it helps a lot. We talked to another um, author a few weeks ago, who uh, uh, Dr. Paul Zak, and he wrote a book about um, the brain chemical oxy- oxytocin. And he had done a lot of experiments for the book that he had participated in himself about the different levels of this brain chemical, and he skydived and did all these different things that, you know, took the took the reader along like you're saying along on the journey with him, and it made it more relatable and just more instead of seeming like a a science book, it was more like oh, I'm going on a journey with someone, and yeah, I think that's that's really a a, a tactic that works really well.
1: Yeah, it's it's a hard structure to come up with because. Um, you, you don't want to put yourself in, I mean, you're really not part of the story, but mm. but somebody has to, you know, there has to be some sort of um, a vehicle, uh-huh. to, especially for this book, because people just don't, I mean, it's a kind of a scary topic. You know, people who have committed a murder, you know, it's just overwhelmingly grim, mm-hmm. and and you don't know how, you know, but then that's the point. Is we don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the point. I realized I have to tell how I discovered this. How I, you know, and I, and my journey took five years, and the book takes three hundred and forty some pages, and you can read it in probably you know two or three sittings, or however fast you read. So it can happen over days, or it can happen over a couple of weeks, however long it takes someone to read a book, but it happens much faster you know, it's, it's a much quicker transition. And I felt like even to this day, it, it overwhelms me sometimes how, you know, just how much I've learned and how, how how you know, deep this this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know for some people, they tell me, you know, I just had to put it down a couple of times. <laughs> I, had to, I had to take a break, I got to tell you, it was a little much. And because it is a very you know heavy topic. It's not like oh let's take a little walk. I mean there are very light wonderful moments that I was you know just so inspired by. But mm-hmm. there's also these very grim moments, and so it's it's a it's hard to take right? for <laughs> some people in one sitting.
0: Now, your book, I have to offer congratulations because your book has been submitted for the Pulitzer Prize. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process and what role um, your publisher, Public Affairs, has played in
1: that? Well, from my understanding, um, I, uh, the way it happened that I discovered this was I received an email asking for all of this very, you know, kind of personal information from my publisher, you know, like, where were you born? Please send us, you know, official information, um, your birthplace, your birth date, your um, uh, kind of a, a little bit of a bio history of your family. And, and I thought, wow, what's that about? And <laughs> they said, well, we, you know, we are nominating Life After Murder f- to the Pulitzer Board. Wow. And I, I, I was, I'll never forget it. I was, I just picked up these beautiful postcards that are photographs of the five men that are Going uh, that we're, we've made into postcards to make an announcement of this exhibit of these life-size photographs of the five men that are going to hang on Alcatraz National Park for three months, beginning August um, 16th. And so I was there picking up the postcards, and I come out, I came out in my car, and I opened up my email, and there it was. And I, I tried to drive, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had to pull over, and I just, I totally broke down. It was. The most wonderful affirmation as a reporter and as a writer, as my first book, um, to to actually think that my publisher, who I have great respect for, Public Affairs, that that they would consider my book worthy of a nomination to the Pulitzer. I just... It just meant so much. I mean, you know, when you turn your book in and they say "good job," you know, <laughs> yeah. and everybody's happy and you know, the, you, but you know, you don't know. You know, you, it's like they get so many books and right. and and I thought, yeah, I'm really proud of this, and I'm I'm very, you know, no matter what happens, I feel so good about this book and and what uh, what has been put into this from my publisher, from the five men. I mean, everybody's just put so much heart into this book, and but then to see that they. They thought that it was uh, that worthy. That was um, quite a moment. Um, so now, as far as I know, um, it has uh, – because your publisher apparently has to nominate a book. So they chose it. And um, and then I believe the Pulitzer board, and I, I, like I say, I ask as few questions as possible. <laughs> I don't want to know timeline. I don't want to know details. I just think it's – I'm just going to enjoy this uh this this affirmation um but i believe that at certain point the pulitzer board considers it and then they determine whether or not it's on for the shortlist and then there's an announcement and so it's all just such a great um such a great feeling to think that you know my you know my work is at least at that level of my publisher has gotten that kind of acknowledgement recognition
0: yeah. Well, and, and congratulations again, and, and good luck. Yeah, thank <laughs> that's you. That's fantastic, especially for a debut novel to be nominated for something like that is, is amazing.
1: Um, and now, how did nonfiction? You... Nonfiction. It's not a novel. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to be sure anyone who listens to this. I know. Not. Slip of the tongue
0: there. I know. That's. I'm so used to hearing debut novel just the, those two words together. It's just my fault. Um, yeah. So now, how did you first get hooked up with with your literary agent and with public affairs?
1: Well, you know, it's hard to find an agent. That's probably, you know, it's such a first step. It, you know, there's this huge crossover, you know, from having never published, you know, a book and then trying to get an agent. And um, I guess the way it happened was I had a friend who was also, had written a proposal for, her, for a book that was entirely different than my topic. Um, hers was more of a fashion book. But she had an agent, you know, and she would say, my agent. (laughs) It was like you just, oh, I just want an agent, you know. And so (laughs) I said, would you ever consider just letting me send my proposal? I'd written up a proposal. I had um, a couple of friends who had also written books who were, I'm a Soros Justice. I received, in 2009, I received a Soros Justice Media Fellowship to do work on this book. And at the time, it was just for a radio documentary, but um, some of the other, we get together every year for an annual fellows meeting, and, and the Soros, um, you know, takes us all over the country every year, um, you know, uh, to, I think, we'll see, we've been to Chicago and Austin, and anyway, so we meet, and then everybody talks for three days. It's just nonstop, just getting to the heart of, of topics and, and interests and projects, and One of the other fellows said, you're writing a book. And I said, really? (laughs) So That's how it went from being a documentary that I was being funded for to a book. And that's when I began writing the proposal. And she gave me some help writing the proposal. Um, And she wrote the book Ordinary Injustice. Her name's Amy Bach. She's wonderful. Um, (laughs) And then – I, so I had this proposal, but I didn't know, you know where to submit it. So I, you know, this friend of mine who was also writing uh, a proposal said I could send it to her agent. And her agent wrote me an email saying, I really like your proposal, but I'm not the one. It's, this isn't the, the genre that I really represent, but who you should talk to and send this proposal to is Gail Ross. In Washington D.C., this is right for her. So, uh-huh. um, so I submitted it to Gail, and she asked me to make some changes. Um, and then, I guess it was about mm, four or five months later, we had this conversation, and she said, "I'm representing your book."
0: Uh-huh. And
1: uh, and then it was just like fast, you know. She did some wonderful, magical. Uh, formatting on my proposal and changed a couple of the the structure of it just slightly, made it just sing so to speak,
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: she sent it out, and within a week I had four offers. Wow! Um, from from t- uh, two war trade publications, really wonderful. Um, and then a two, one was a, a smaller, more of an academic press, and then public affairs. Mm-hmm. And then you do the interview process with the editors who have expressed interest, and then you receive these hard offers, mm-hmm. and then you make a decision, and that's it. And then you're in. And then the work begins. <laughs> so it's it's just been a great... And I was I was really ho- hoping for public affairs. That's, that was the publisher I most wanted, because I felt like they would handle both me as a first-time writer of a book, and the topic, the denseness, density of the topic, really well. And they were amazing to work with. I was, I could not be happier with their editing. Their handling of uh, the whole process was beautiful. And now even my publicist is, is just incredible. So it's been a really great experience. That's
0: fantastic. Now, what is the interview process like when you're interviewing with Publishing houses.
1: Well, my agent would set up the interview, um, mm-hmm. and it would be it was it was over the phone, and they lasted some anywhere from uh, I think forty five minutes to maybe two and a half hours. Oh wow, they're long. Um, <laughs> I I was kind of unprepared, but it, they're so much fun. I was really nervous, but you know they know what they're looking for. I think, and and you know what, when it comes right down to it, you're both like almost like on a date, you know, <laughs> you're, this is what I'm thinking. Well, this is what I'm thinking. And, and they just want to know like everything about you and the book and what your, what your vision of the book is, how you see it, um, who you see as being interested in your topic, um, when you would bring it in, how many words you think. And then there's some areas where you're really not supposed to go because that's really between the publisher and your agent. You're not supposed to touch on things like, you know, how much they're going to pay or what their offer is or um, the rights. You know, there's certain areas that, you know, it's just kind of obvious you don't, you leave that up to your agent. And, mm. and Gail Ross apparently is, a, is, is so respected that, you know, you just feel comfortable talking about. And, you know, she kind of prepared me for the interviews. But um, and every it was interesting because you think, OK, I have here's my book all of the interviews are going kind to of, kind of be the same, but they're not, you know, every, <laughs> every, in you're actually interviewing with the person who's going to edit your book, who's mm-hmm. purchasing your book. And so that person is the person who's buying your, your project. They have, you have to share a vision. And, and so, you know, you have to be on the same page, And you know, actually, there was um, I interviewed with a editor from Norton, and I really, really liked her. (laughs) She was wonderful. I'm not going to say her name, but you know, at some point in my life, if 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 all of the stars align, I would hope that someday, um, she would edit a book of mine. You know, it wasn't this one, but she was just wonderful. She had such a, a visual and, and and an interesting way of of seeing a project um, and I just really would love to work with her. Uh, it, like I said, this was not the project, but I had the best editor. You know, my editor, Clive Priddle is now publisher. He's moved from, I believe he was executive publisher or something, whatever those titles are. <laughs> He's now publisher of public affairs. I'm sure it was because of my book. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But um, but I, I was very fortunate to actually um, have, for it all take an interest in my project.
0: Wow, that's that's great. It's a real that's an interesting kind of behind the scenes look at all of that because I know for people who are unagented have been unpublished, you know that's this whole world that until you actually get there yourself, you know you don't really know the whole all the ins and outs of it. So it's it's great to have a, a look into that side of it.
1: Um, yeah, looking back when I talk about it now, it sounds like oh step A step B step C that was <laughs> yeah, easy no that's problem beautiful. one two three boom done book. <laughs> you know it's. I can't tell you the anxiety <laughs> in all, every single step, you know, the, the the nightless, sleepless, dayless worry, you know, of, oh my, is this going to happen, you know, and my husband just patting me on the back, it's going to be fine, you know, and, and, you know, then when it does happen, say, like, oh yeah, that, that's, you know, that's all part of it, you know, <laughs> is that, I think the anxiety kind of drives it. Yeah. You know, because you have to be that passionate. You have to feel that strong about and they have to feel that. You know, mm-hmm. if you just say, "I'm going to write this book. It's going to be really good." You know, yeah. they I think they want to feel that tension in your voice, in your life. They want to feel like you are as driven as you are and and so, you know, I make it, you know, I hope I didn't make it sound like it was just a piece of cake because it it in no way yeah. Um, happen like that. So
0: Well, and that passion is what gets you through those two-and-a-half-hour interviews. If you're just ambivalent <laughs> about your book, you
1: probably peter out a little before that. Yeah, no, you, you know, at that point, you're just, I don't know, adrenaline <laughs> is pushing everything, I think. Well,
0: we're almost out of time. My last question is just um, what's next for you? What do you have coming up?
1: Well, right now I'm – I'm the book has uh, – has just taken over. Um, I'm I'm working on the book in every aspect of my life. Uh, I do interviews on the book, radio, television, uh, and now the um, the the photographs of the five men are going to be, as I mentioned before, um, on a, this exhibit at Alcatraz National Park for three months, and that launch is now in two weeks. Um, that we're putting it up this week and then the uh, opening event is on the 25th of August and that is taking a huge amount of focus Um, I'm also uh, building a tour with my publicist of the East Coast the entire month of August I'm sorry of October Mm -hmm. and then um, I'm I'm also working on this national radio program called Life of the Law I'm executive producer of that we're launching that in September and over here in this little whiteboard on the <laughs> far left of my office is this other project, and it's what I'm hoping will be my second book.
0: Oh, great. Well, it sounds like you're going to be very, very busy, but good luck with all of that. And, well, thank um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, I really – this is a, a real pleasure. I enjoyed the questions. They were really good questions. And I um, and, uh, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. Now, you can find out more about Nancy at her website, nancymullain.com. And more about her book, Life After Murder, at lifeaftermurder.com. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at ScriptScribes. And there's no and in the middle, just at ScriptScribes. Thanks for listening.